Today I'll be speaking with Max Tegmark. Max is a physicist at MIT. He's a cosmologist in particular. He's published over 200 technical papers, and he's been featured in dozens of science documentaries. And he's now an increasingly influential voice on the topic of artificial intelligence because his Future of Life Institute deals with this and other potential existential threats. Max has written one book for the general reader, a book that I found incredibly valuable, entitled Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality. And we'll be talking about some of that today. I really enjoyed talking to Max. We talk about the foundations of science and what distinguishes science from non-science. We talk about the mysterious utility of mathematics in the natural sciences. We also talk for quite some time about our current picture of the universe from a cosmological perspective, uh, which opens on to the fascinating and totally counterintuitive concept of the multiverse, which, as you'll see, entails the claim that there may well be a functionally infinite number of people just like yourself leading nearly identical lives and every other possible life at this moment elsewhere in the universe, which is my candidate for the the strangest idea that is still scientifically plausible. And finally, we talk about the dangers of advances in artificial intelligence as we see them. In any case, it was a fascinating conversation from my point of view. Max is a fascinating guy. And uh, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you'll buy his book, because it is well worth reading. And now I give you Max Tegmark. How you doing, Max? Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. I, I have a, a lot I want to talk to you about. I'm reading your book, Our Mathematical Universe, which I highly recommend to our listeners. And I, I, I'm going to talk about some of what I find most interesting in that book, but it's, it by no means exhausts the contents of the book. There's no conversation we're going to have here that's going to get into the level of detail that you uh, present in the book. So it's, I really consider your book a, a huge achievement. You, you've managed to make an up-to-the-minute picture of the state of uh, physics and, and cosmology in particular truly accessible to a general reader, and that's, that's certainly not something that uh, all of your colleagues can claim to have achieved. So, so congratulations on that. Oh, thank you for your kind words. It's important to remember also, of course, that if in thinking about these things or reading my book, one feels that one doesn't understand quite everything about our cosmos, you know, nobody else does either. <laughs> so yeah. that's quite okay. And in fact, that's really very much part of the charm of studying the cosmos, that we still have these great mysteries that uh, we can ponder. Yeah, and so I'm going to drive rather directly toward those mysteries. And uh, But first, I just want to give some context here. You and I met in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, at a conference you helped organize on the frontiers of artificial intelligence research and in particular focused on the emerging safety concerns there. I hope we're eventually going to get to that, but that's that's where we met and our obvious shared interest is on AI at the moment, but I, I do want to talk first about just the pure physics, and then we will get to uh, the uh, armies of lethal robots that may await us. That was great. It, it seems pretty clear to me from our conversations also that we also have a very strong shared interest in in uh, looking at the, this reality out there and pondering what its true nature really is. Let's start there, kind of at the, at the foundations of our knowledge and the foundations of science. Because, you know, in science, we are making our best effort to arrive at a unified understanding of reality. And I think, think there are many people in our culture, many in humanities departments, 
who think that no such understanding is possible. They think there's no view of the world that encompasses subatomic particles and cocktail parties and, and everything in between. But I think that from the point of view of science, we have to believe that there is. We, we may use different concepts at different scales, but there shouldn't be radical discontinuities between different scales in our understanding of reality. And I, uh, I'm assuming that's an intuition you share, but uh, let's just take that as a starting point. Yeah, when, when someone says that they think reality is just a social construct or whatnot, then other people get upset and say, you know, if you think gravity is a social construct, I encourage you to take a step out through my window here on the sixth floor. And if you drill down into what this conflict comes from, it's just that they're using that R word, reality, in very different ways. And as a physicist, the way I use the word reality is I, I assume that there is something out there independent of me as a human. I assume that the Andromeda galaxy would continue existing, you know, even if I weren't here, for example. And then we take this very humble approach of saying, okay, there is some stuff that exists out there, our physical reality, let's call it. And uh, let's look at it as closely we can and try to figure out what properties it has. If there's some confusion about something, you know, that's our problem, <laughs> not reality's problem. There's no doubt in my mind that our universe knows perfectly well what it's doing and it's, it functions in some way. We physicists have so far failed to figure out what that way is and we're in this schizophrenic situation where we can't even make quantum mechanics talk to relativity theory properly, but that's the way I see it. Simply a failure so far in our own creativity. And um, I think it's not only would I guess that there is a reality out there independent of us, but I actually feel it's quite arrogant to say the opposite. It, it's right. just, because it sort of presumes that we humans play, should go center stage. Solipsists say that there is no reality <laughs> without themselves. Ostriches in the apocryphal story right, make this assumption that things that they don't see don't exist. But even very respected scientists go down this um, slippery slope sometimes. Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, famously said, no, no reality without observation, mm. which sort of puts humans center stage and sort of denies that there can be things you should call reality without us. But I, I think that's very arrogant. And I, I think we, <laughs> we could use a good dose of humility. So my starting point is that there is something out there and let's try to figure out how it works. Right. Well, so I, will, I think we'll get to uh, Bohr and, and to the, his Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics at some point, at least on the fly, because as you probably know, it really is the darling interpretation of New Age philosophers and spiritualists. And it's something that, that I think we have reason to be uh, somewhat skeptical about. But inconveniently for us, this skepticism about the possibility of understanding reality does sort of sneak in the back door for us somewhat paradoxically by virtue of taking science seriously, in particular evolutionary biology seriously. And this is something you and I were talking about when we last met, where, uh, you know, I think at one point in the conversation, I observed, as, as almost everyone has uh, who thinks about evolution, that one thing we can be sure of is that our, that our cognitive capacities and our common sense and our intuitions about reality have not evolved to equip us to understand reality at the at the smallest possible scale or at the largest or 
things moving incredibly fast or things that are very old. We, we have intuitions that are tuned for things at human scale, things that uh, are moving relatively slowly, and we have to decide whether we can mate with them or whether we can eat them or whether they're going to eat us. And so you and I were talking about this, and, and so I, I, you know, I said that it's no surprise, therefore, that the deliverances of science, in particular your areas of science, are deeply counterintuitive. And you That's right. You did me one better though. You you said that not only is it not surprising, it would be surprising and in fact give you reason to mistrust your theories if they were aligned with common sense. We should expect the punchline at the end of the book of nature to be deeply counterintuitive in some sense. And I just want you to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's a very clear prediction of Darwin's ideas if you take them seriously that Whatever the ultimate nature of reality is, it should seem really weird and counterintuitive to us because, you know, developing a brain advanced enough to understand new concepts is costly in evolution. And it w we wouldn't have evolved it and spent a lot of energy increasing our metabolism, etc., if it didn't help in any way. If, if some cavewoman spent too much time pondering what was out there beyond all the stars that she could see or subatomic particles. Now, she might not have uh, noticed the tiger that snuck up behind her and gone cleaned right out of the gene pool. Moreover, this is not just a natural logical prediction, but it's a testable prediction. Darwin lived a long time ago, right? And we can look what has happened since then when we've used technology to probe things beyond what we could experience with our senses. You know, so the prediction is that whenever we, with technology, study physics that was inaccessible to our ancestors, it should seem weird. So let's look at the fact sheet, at the scorecard. We studied what happened when things go much faster than our ancestors near the speed of light. Time slowed down. You know, mm. Whoa. This so weird that Einstein never even got the Nobel Prize for it because my Swedish curmudgeonly countryman on the Nobel Committee thought it was too weird. Right. Uh, you look at what happens when things are really, really huge and you get black holes, which were considered so weird. Again, it took a long time until people really started to accept them and you, then you look at what happens when you make things really small, so small that our ancestors couldn't see them, and you find that elementary particles can be in several places at once. Extremely counterintuitive mm -hmm. to the point that people are still arguing about what it means exactly, even though they all concede the particles really can do this weird stuff. And the list goes on. Whenever you take any parameter out of the range of what we, our ancestors experienced, really weird things happen. If you have very high energies... For example, like when you smash two particles together near the speed of light at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, you know, if, if you collide a proton and an antiproton together and out pops a Higgs boson, you know, that's about as intuitive as if you collide a Volkswagen with an Audi and out comes a cruise ship. Mm. And yet this is the way the world works. So I, I think the, <laughs> the verdict is in. Whatever the nature of reality actually is, it's going to seem really weird to us. And if we, therefore, dismiss physics theories just because they seem counterintuitive, we're almost certainly going to dismiss whatever the correct theory is when, once it, someone mm. actually tells us about it. But, so I'm wondering, though, whether this slippery slope is, in fact, more slippery than we're admitting here, though. Because how do we resist the slide into total epistemological skepticism? So, so for instance, why trust our mathematical intuitions or the mathematical concepts born of them 
or the picture of reality in physics that's arrived at through this kind of bootstrapping of our intuitions into areas that are counterintuitive, because I understand why, why we should trust these things pragmatically. I mean, it seems to work. We can build machines that work. You know, we can fly on airplanes. You know, there's, there's a difference between an airplane that flies and one that doesn't. But as a matter of epistemology, why should we trust the picture of reality that math allows us to bring into view if, again, we are just apes who have used the cognitive capacities that uh, have evolved without any constraint that they accord with reality at large? And mathematics is clearly, insofar as we apprehend it, discover it, invent it, an extension of those very humble capacities? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And, and some people tell me sometimes that the theories that physicists discuss at conferences from black holes to parallel universes sound even crazier than um, a lot of myths from old time about fire, flame-throwing dragons and, and whatnot. You know, so shouldn't we dismiss the physics just as we dis dismiss these myths? To me, there is a huge difference here in that these physics theories, even though they sound crazy, as you yourself said here, they actually make predictions that we can actually test. And that is really the crux of it. So if you take the theory of quantum mechanics seriously, for example, and assume that particles can be in several places at once, then you predict that you should be able to build this thing called a transistor, which you can combine in vast numbers and build this thing called a cell phone, you know, and it actually works. It's, uh, you know, good luck some useful technology using the fire dragon hypothesis or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is very linked, I think, to where we should draw the borderline between sci what's science and what's not science. Some people think that the line should go between that which seems intuitive and not crazy and that which feels too crazy. And I'm arguing against that because black holes seemed very crazy at the mm -hmm. time. And now we found bunch loads of them in the sky. To me, instead, really, the, the line in the sand that divides science from what's not science is, the way I think about it is, I, what makes me a scientist is that I would much rather have questions I can't answer than have answers I can't question. One thing you're, you're emphasizing here is that it's not in the strangeness or uh, seeming acceptability of the conclusion. It's in the methodology by which you arrived at that conclusion. And falsifiability and, and testable predictions is part of that. It, I don't think you would say that a Popperian conception of science uh, you know, as a set of falsifiable claims subsumes all of science, because they're clearly scientifically coherent things we could say about the nature of reality, where we know there's an answer there. We just know that no one has the answer. The very prosaic example I often use here is, you know, how many birds are in flight over the surface of the earth at this moment? Well, we don't know. Uh, we know we're never going to know because it's just changed before I can get to the end of the sentence. But it's a totally coherent question to ask. And we know that it just has an integer answer, you know, leaving spooky quantum mechanics or parallel universes aside. If we're just talking about earth with, and birds as objects, we can't get the data, but we know in some basic sense that this reality that extends beyond our perception guarantees that the data in principle exist. I think you say at some point in your book that a theory doesn't have to be testable across the board. It just parts of it have to be testable to give us some level of credence in its overall picture. Is that is that how you view it? Well, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to Popper in the, the idea of testability works fine for even these crazy concepts 
like sounding concepts like parallel universes and and and, and black holes it, as long as we remember that what we test are theories specific mathematical theories that we can write down right parallel universes are not a theory they're a prediction from certain theories a black hole isn't a theory either it's a prediction from einstein's general relativity theory and once you have a theory in physics it's testable as long as it predicts at least one thing that you can go check right because then you can falsify it if you check that thing and it's wrong whereas it might also make just because it happens to also make some other predictions for things you can never test you know that doesn't make it non-scientific as long as there's still something you can test. Yeah. Black holes, for example, the, the theory of general relativity predicts exactly what would happen to you if you fall into the monster black hole in the middle of a galaxy that weighs four million times as much as the sun. It predicts exactly how you're gonna when you're gonna get spaghettified and how <laughs> when you're and so on. Except you can never actually do that experiment and then write an article about it in physics review letters because you're inside the event horizon and the information can't come out. But nonetheless, that's a testable theory because general relativity also predicts loads of other things such as how your GPS works, which we can test with great precision. And when the theory passes a lot of tests for things that we can make and we start to take the theory seriously, then I feel we have to be honest and also take seriously the other predictions for the, right. from the theory, you know, whether we like them or not. We can't just cherry pick and say, hey, you know, I love uh, what the general relativity theory does for GPS and the bending of light and the perihelion, the weird orbit of Mercury and stuff. But I don't really like the black holes, so I'm going to opt out of that prediction. That <laughs> you cannot do the way that you just say I want coffee and opt out of the caffeine and buy decaf. In physics, if you, once you buy the theory, <laughs> you, should, you need to have to buy the whole product. And if you don't like any of the predictions, well then you have to try to come up with a different mathematical theory which doesn't have that prediction but still explains everything else. And that's often very hard. People have tried for 100 years to do that with Einstein's gravity theory, right, to get rid of the black holes, and they've so far pretty much failed. And that's why people have been kicking and streaming, screaming, dragged into believing in, or at least taking very seriously black holes. And it's the same thing with, with these various kinds of parallel universes also, that it's precisely because people have tried so hard to come up with alternative theories that explain how to make computers and blah, blah, that don't have these weird predictions and failed that you're starting to take it more seriously. Yeah, well, we're going to get to the parallel universes because that's really where I think people's intuitions break down entirely. But before we get there, I want to, um, I want to linger on this question of the about the primacy of mathematics and, and the, the strange utility of mathematics. At one point in your book, you cite um, the, the off-cited paper by um, Wigner, who I think he wrote in, um, in the 60s about, right. in a paper entitled The Unreasonable, uh, the, the, the Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. And this is something that many scientists have remarked on. This, there seems to be a kind of mysterious property of these abstract structures and chains of reasoning where mathematics seems uniquely useful for describing the physical world and making predictions about things that you would never anticipate but for the fact that the mathematics is suggesting that something uh, should be so. And this That's is, right. This has lured many scientists into essentially mysticism or at the very least philosophical Platonism and you know, sometimes even religion, positing mathematical structure that exists, or, or even, you know, pure mathematical concepts like numbers that exist in some almost platonic state beyond the human mind. And 
I'm wondering if you share some of that mathematical idealism, and I, I just wanted to get your reaction to a an idea that I believe I got from a cognitive scientist who lived in, I think he died in the 40s, maybe the 50s, Kenneth Craig, who published a book in 1943, where he, I think it, just in passing, he, this anticipates Wigner by about 20 years, but in passing, he tried to resolve this this mystery about the, the utility of mathematics. And he, he simply speculated that there was a, that there must be some isomorphism between brain processes that represent the physical world and processes in the world that are represented, and that this might account for the utility of mathematical concepts. I think he more or less asked, you know, is it really so surprising that certain patterns of brain activity that are, in fact, what mathematical concepts are at the level of the human brain uh, can be mapped onto the world, that there's some kind of sameness of structure or homology there? Does that mm-hmm. go, does that go any direction toward resolving this mystery for you, or do you think it exceeds that? Yeah, that's an interesting argument. The argument that our brain adapts to the world and therefore has a world model inside of the brain. That's... Our brain is just clearly part of the world, and yeah, so, so there yeah. are processes in the world, and there are processes in the world that that have a by virtue of what brains are. Right. Uh, have a sameness of fit and uh, yeah. kind of a mapping. So I agree with the first part of the argument and disagree with the second part. I, I, I agree that it's natural that there will be things in the brain that are very similar to what's happening in the world, precisely because the brain has evolved to have a good world model. But I disagree that this fully answers the whole question, because the the claim that uh, he made there that you that you mentioned that brain processes of certain kinds is effectively what mathematics is. That's something that most math- most mathematicians I know would violently disagree with, that math has something to do with brain processes at all. They think of math rather as structures which have nothing to do with a brain. Hold on, let's just pull the brakes there, though, because I mean, clearly your experience of doing math, your, right. your grasp of mathematical concepts or not, the moment something makes sense or you, you persist in your confusion your memory of the multiplication table, your ability to do basic algebra and everything on up, all of that is, in every instance of its being realized, is being realized as a state of your brain. You're not disputing that. Of course. Absolutely. I'm just quibbling about about what what mathematics is. What's your definition of mathematics? And I think it's interesting to take a step back and ask, what do mathematicians today generally define math as? Because if you go ask people on the street, you know, like my mom, for example, they will often view math as just a bag of tricks for manipulating numbers or maybe as a sadistic form of torture invented by school teachers to ruin our self-confidence. Whereas mathematicians, instead, they talk about mathematical structures and studying their properties. I have a colleague here at MIT, for example, who has spent 10 years of his life studying this mathematical structure called E8. Never mind what it is exactly, mm-hmm. but he has a poster of it. He's on the wall of his office, David Vogan. And if I went and suggested to him that that thing on his wall is just something he made up somehow that he invented, uh, he would be very offended. He feels he discovered it, that right. it was out there, and he discovered that it was out there and, and mapped out its properties in the, exactly the same way that we discovered the planet Neptune 
rather than invented the planet Neptune right. and then went out to, to, to study its properties. Similarly, if you look at something more familiar than E8, you just look at the, the counting numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. You know, the fact that 2 plus 2 is 4 and 4 plus 2 is 6, most mathematicians would argue that this structure, this mathematical structure that we call the numbers, is not the structure that we invented or invented properties of, but rather that we discovered the properties of. Mm. In, in different cultures, this has been discovered multiple times independently. In each culture, people invented rather than discovered a different language for describing it. You know, in English, you say one, two, three, four, five. In Swedish, the language I grew up with, you say et, två, tre, fyra, fem. But um, you can, if you use the Swedish-English dictionary and translate between the two, you see that these are two equivalent descriptions of exactly the same structure. And uh, similarly, we invent symbols. What symbol you use to write the number two and three is actually different in the U.S. versus in India today or in the Roman Empire, right? But again, once you have your dictionaries there, you see that there's still only one structure that we discover and then we invent languages. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, to just drive this home with one better example, you know, Plato, right? He was really fascinated about these very regular geometric shapes that now bear his name, platonic solids. And he discovered that there were five of them, the cube, the octahedron, the tetrahedron, the icosahedron, and the dodecahedron. He, he, he chose to invent the name dodecahedron, and he could have called it the schmodecahedron or, or something else, right? That was his prerogative to invent name, the language for describing them. But he was not free to just invent a sixth platonic solid. Yeah, yeah, because it yeah, no just doubt. doesn't exist. So it's in that sense that that Plato felt that those exist out there and are discovered rather than invented. Well, Does I, that make sense? Yeah, no, I I certainly agree with that, and I I don't think you actually have to take a position on, or you you don't have to deny that that mathematics is a a landscape of possible discovery that exceeds our current understanding and may in fact always right. exceed it. So there's yeah, so you know what is the the highest prime number above the current one we know well clearly there's an answer to that question if you mean the lowest prime number above all the ones we know oh, yes oh sorry yes the next prime number yeah yeah that number will be discovered rather than invented and to invent it would be to invent it perfectly within the constraints of its being in fact the next prime number so it, it's not wrong to call that pure discovery more or less analogous as you said to finding neptune when you didn't know it existed or going to the continent of Africa. You know, it's Africa is there whether you've been there or not. Right. So I, yeah, I agree with that, but it still seems true to say that every instance of these operations being performed, every instance of mathematical insight, every prime number being thought about or located or having its... Uh -huh. Every one of those moments has been a moment of a brain doing its mathematical thing. Right. So I'm, I'm just or a computer sometimes yes. because we have an increasingly large number of proofs now done by machines right. and discoveries also sometimes. We're still talking about physical systems that can play this game of discovery in this mathematical space that we right. are talking about. This fundamental mystery is that why should mathematics be so useful for describing the physical world and for making predictions about blank spaces on the map? And exactly. 
uh, again, and I'm and I'm I'm kind of stumbling into this conversation because I'm I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a mathematical philosopher, and so I, I'm sort of you know, shooting from the hip here with you. But I, I just wanted to get a sense of whether this could remove some of the mystery, if in fact you have certain physical processes in brains and and computers and other intelligent systems wherever they are that can mirror this landscape of potential discovery if that does sort of remove what otherwise seems a little spooky and platonic and represents a challenge for mapping, you know, abstract idealized concepts onto a physical universe. Yeah, that's a great question and the, you know the answer you're going to get to that question will depend dramatically on who you ask. There are, are very, very smart and respectable people who um, come down all across the very broad spectrum of views on this. And in my book, I chose to not you know, say this is how it is, but rather to explore the whole spectrum of opinions. So some people will say, if you ask them about this mystery, there is no mystery. You know, uh, there is, math is sometimes useful in nature, sometimes it's not. That's it. There's nothing to, mysterious about it. Go away. And then if you go a little bit more towards the platonic side, you'll find a lot of people saying things like, um, well, it seems like a lot of things in our universe are very accurately approximated by math. And that's great. But they're still not perfectly described by math. And then there, then you have some very, very uh, optimistic physicists like Einstein and a lot of string theorists who think that there actually is some math that we haven't maybe discovered yet that doesn't just approximate our physical world, but describes it exactly and is a perfect description mm. of it. And then finally, the, the, the most extreme position on the other side, which I explore at length in, in uh, the book, and that's the one that I'm personally guessing on, it, is that not only is our world described by mathematics, but it is mathematics mm. in the sense that the two are really the same. So you talked about how in the physical world we discover new entities and then we invent language to describe them similarly in mathematics we discover new entities like new prime numbers the platonic solids and we invent names for them. maybe <laughs> the, this mathematical reality and the physical reality are actually one and the same and and the reason why when you first hear that and you know it sounds completely looney tunes of course you, you know you look it, it, it's equivalent to saying that the physical world doesn't just have some mathematical properties, but that it has only mathematical properties. And that sounds really dumb when, when you, if you look at your wife or your child or whatever, and you, you're like, this doesn't <laughs> look like a bunch of numbers. But to me as a physicist, and when I look at them, of course, when I met Annika, your wife, for the first time, of course, she has all these properties that don't strike me as mathematical. Don't tell me you were noticing my wife's mathematical properties. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time as a physicist, you know, I couldn't help notice that your wife was made entirely out of quarks and electrons. Mm. And uh, what property does an electron actually have? Well, it has the property minus one, one half, one, and so on. And we, we've made up nerdy names for these properties, we physicists, such as electric charge, spin, and lepton number. But the electron doesn't care what language we invent to describe these numbers. The properties are just these numbers, just mathematical properties. And, and for Annika's quarks, same deal. They, they also, the, the only properties they have are also numbers, except different numbers from the electrons. So the only difference between a quark and an electron is what numbers 
they have as their properties. And if you take seriously that everything in both your wife and in the world is made of these elementary particles that have only mathematical properties, then you can ask, what about the space itself then that these particles are in? You know, what properties does space have? Well, it has the property three, for starters, you know, the number of dimensions, which again is just a number. Einstein discovered it also has some more properties called curvature and topology, but they're mathematical too. And if, if both space itself and all the stuff in space have only mathematical properties, then it starts to sound a little bit less ridiculous, the idea that maybe everything is completely mathematical and we're actually part of this enormous mathematical object. I don't want to spend too much more time here because there's many other things I want to get into in in your book, but this this is just a fascinating area for me. And uh, again, unfortunately, one that I feel especially unequipped to um, really have strong opinions on. But so in in listening to what you said there, how is it different from saying that every description of reality we arrive at everything you can say about quarks or space or anything is not as you just said just a matter of math and values we could also say it's a matter of in this case english sentences or sentences spoken in human language could we be saying something as in the end trite as saying that the question of why mathematics is so good at representing reality is a little like saying, why is language so good for speaking in or so good for capturing our beliefs? Is there a kind of a, a disanalogy there that uh, can save us? The language we invent to describe mathematics, the symbols for the numbers and for plus and multiplication and, and so on, is of course a language too. So languages generally are useful, yes, but there's a big difference. The human language is notoriously vague, and that's why the radio and the planet Neptune and the Higgs boson were not discovered by people just sitting around blah, blah, blahing in English, mm. but with, with a u- judicious use of the language of mathematics. And all of these three objects were discovered because someone sat down with a pencil and paper and did a bunch of math and made a prediction. If you look over there at that time, you'll find Neptune there, a new planet. If you build this gadget, you know, you'll be able to send radio waves. And if you build this Large Hadron Collider, you'll find a new particle. There's real power in there, and I think that before we leave this math topic, I just want to end on an emotional note that some people don't like this idea because they think it sounds counterintuitive. We already laid that to rest in the beginning of our conversation. Mm. Uh, Other people don't like it because they feel it sort of insults their ego. They don't want to be thinking, they don't want to think of themselves as a mathematical entity or whatnot. But I actually think this is a very optimistic idea if it's true, because if it's wrong, this idea that nature is completely mathematical, that means that this fantastic quest of physics, which has exploited the discovery of of mathematical patterns to invent new technologies, right? That means that quest is going to end eventually, that physics is doomed. One day we'll hit this roadblock when we've run out, found all the mathematical patterns there were to find. We won't ever get any more clues from nature, and and then we can't (laughs) go any further with our understanding or technology. Whereas if it's all math, then there is no such roadblock, right? And the ability for life in the future to progress is really only limited by our own imagination. And to me, that's the optimistic view. Is there any connection between this claim that it's all math at bottom 
with the claim that it's all information. I'm now getting echoes of John Wheeler, who talked about it from bit, this concept that at some level, the universe is a computation. Is that is there a connection between these two uh, discussions, or are they, are they distinct? Yeah, there probably is. There probably is. I mean, I had John Wheeler is one of my great heroes. I had the great fortune to get to spend a lot of time with him when I was a postdoc in Princeton, and he really inspired me greatly. And my hunch is that we will one day in the future come to understand more deeply what information really is in its role in physics, and also come to understand more deeply the role of, of computation and quantum computation in the universe and will that will one day come to realize maybe that mathematics computation and information are just three different um, ways of looking at the same the same thing we're not there yet but that mm. that would be my guess are, are we there on the topic of entropy is there is a relationship between entropy in terms of energy and entropy in terms of information is there a unified concept there the, or is there just a kind of a, an analogy bridging those two discussions now, there are things that's fairly well, fairly well understood, even though there's still some controversies that are brewing. But there, this is a very active topic of, of research. In fact, you mentioned that you and I met at a conference that I was involved in organizing. The previous conference I organized, you'll be pleased to know, was called the Physics of Information, hmm. where we brought together physicists, computer science people, neuroscientists, and others, and philosophers, and had a huge amount of fun discussing exactly these these questions so i think i think um, there's a lot more to come and for to, to me the these ideas i the most far out and um speculative ideas I, I explore in the book about the role of math are not to be viewed as sort of the final answer to end all research but rather simply as a great way to generate new cool practical applications of things it's a roadmap to finding new problems and you hinted on on at some of them here. I think, I think uh, there, there's a lot of fascinating relationships between information, computation, and math, and the world that we haven't discovered yet. And right. they probably have a lot to do with the conscious, with how consciousness works as well, is my guess. And I think we have a lot of cool uh, science to look forward to. Consciousness is really the, the center of my interest, but we may not get there, because I, I now want to get into the multiverse, which is probably the strangest concept in science now. It's something that I thought I understood before picking up your book, and uh, then I discovered there were there were three more flavors of multiverse than I realized existed. I want to talk about the multiverse, but first, let, let's just start with the universe, because this is a, a term that uh, around which there is some confusion. Let's just get our bearings. What do we mean, or what should we mean by the term universe? And I want to start with your, your level one multiverse. So if it's possible, give us a uh, a brief understand, a brief uh, description of the concept of inflation, inflation that that gets us there. Sure. So, what what is our universe? First of all, before we start talking about others, many people as, sort of as tacitly assume that universe is a synonym for the for everything that exists. And if so, by definition, there can't be anything more. And talk of parallel universes would just be silly, right? But that is in fact not what people generally in, in cosmology mean when they say universe. When they say our universe. They mean the spherical region of space from which light has had time to reach us so far during the 13.8 billion years since our Big Bang. So that's, in other words, everything we could possibly see, even with unlimited funding for telescopes. Right? And uh, if, so if that's our universe, we can reasonably ask, well, is there more space beyond that, you know, from which light has not yet reached us, but might reach us tomorrow or, or in a billion years? And if there is, 
if there are if space goes on far beyond this, if it's infinite or just vastly larger than the space we can see, then all these other regions, which are as big as our universe, if they also have galaxies and planets in them and so on, it would be kind of arrogant to not call them universes as well, because the people who live there <laughs> will call that their universe. Hmm. And um, inflation is very linked to this, because it's the best theory we have for what created our Big Bang and made our space the way it is, so vast and so expanding. And it actually predicts, generically, that space is not just really big, but vast, and in most cases, actually infinite. Which would mean, if that's true, if inflation actually happened, that what we call our universe is really just a small part of, of a much bigger space. So, in other words, space, then, is much bigger than the part of space that we call our universe. And this is something, actually, I don't think is particularly weird once one gets the terminology straight, because it's just... <laughs> history all over again, right? We we humans have been the masters of underestimation. We've had this the overinflated ego where we want to put ourselves in the center and assume that everything that we know about is everything that exists. And we've been proven wrong again and again and again, discovering that everything we thought existed is just a small part of a much grander structure. A planet, solar system, a galaxy, a galaxy cluster, our universe, and maybe also a hierarchy now of parallel universes. It would just continue the same trend. And um, for somebody to just object on some sort of philosophical grounds that things can't exist if they're outside our universe, if we can't see them, <laughs> that just seems very arrogant, much like an ostrich with its head in the sand, right. saying if I can't see it, it can't exist. Right, but things things begin to get very weird given the, this fact that inflation, which, as you said, is is the best current picture of, of how things got started, given that inflation predicts a universe of infinite extent, infinite space, infinite matter, and therefore you have a universe in which everything that is possible is in fact actual. Everything happens. Everything happens, in fact, an infinite number of times, which is to say that you and I have this podcast an infinite number of times and an infinite number of different ways. You know, in one in one version, you know, in, in some universe or some part of now we're, we're still talking about the level one multiverse here. So we're so we're just talking about, you know, if you if you could travel far enough, fast enough away, you'd arrive on some planet disconcertingly like Earth, where you and I are having a virtually identical podcast, but for a, a single change in term, or, you know, I just decide to shave off my eyebrows in the middle of this conversation. <laughs> exactly. And or I switch talking French. This is, well, stop me there. Is, is that, in fact, what you think a majority of cosmologists believe? So this is a great question. First, it's a great illustration of... of one of the cool things in science, where you start with some pretty innocent assumptions, namely here that space just goes on forever, like most of us thought as kids, and moreover, that things started out a little bit randomly everywhere. And you get this totally shocking conclusion. If, if When I go ask my colleagues, I, I would say the vast majority of them uh, would put their money on that some form of inflation happened, and that our space is actually much bigger than uh, our universe. Whether it's actually infinite or just really huge starts getting a little bit more controversial. And, and we would love to also, we also don't know for sure, of course, whether inflation actually happened. But it, this, is, this is sort of the simplest version of the theory where space is, simply goes on forever. 
It's an infinite space, much like Euclid's space or the one we thought about as kids. And uh, in the book, I call this the level one multiverse, but you can just use the synonym space hmm. for it. And, if, and, and just to drill down a little bit more on where the craziness comes in, if you have if you look at the way our universe got this way and the way our podcast came about, right, it's because we had about 10 to the power 78 quarks and electrons here that started out in a particular way, somewhat random early on after inflation, which led to the formation of our solar system and our planet and our parents met and so on and we met and then this this happened, right? If you'd started the quarks out a little bit differently, things would have unfolded differently and you can actually count up how many different ways you can arrange the quarks and electrons in our universe and it turns out it's only about a googleplex different ways where googleplex is one with a google zeros mm. and a google is one with a hundred zeros so it's a it's a huge number but it's finite mm. so if, if you have an infinite number of other regions equally big and you start you roll the dice again and all of them then as you can calculate that if you go about a googleplex meters away you will indeed end up with just what you described the universe that's Extremely similar to this one, except that uh, one minute ago, you all of a sudden, you know, decided to start speaking Hungarian instead. And uh, it's, it's a very mind-boggling idea. We don't know for a fact that it's like this, but this is the sort of the vanilla-flavored cosmological model, the one that is the most popular today. Right, right. Well, and I think the weak link in this chain of reasoning here, or the place where where a skeptical person can get off this train is in the assumption or belief that inflation implies an infinite universe rather than just a very large one. And so if it seems like you could pull, pull the brakes there. But unfortunately, the, this concept of a multiverse, judging from your discussion of it in, in your book, and this is, this is what I didn't understand before I picked up your book, seems overdetermined. It seems there, there are other ways at arriving at this multiverse concept, which we'll get to. And so it's, it has, a scientifically speaking, there are many reasons to believe in a functionally infinite number of copies of ourselves living out lives of, for all intents and purposes, exactly similar or differing to every possible degree, right? So it's true to say that everything that can happen does happen under this rubric. That's right. So yeah. Just to distinguish between what we know and what we don't know for sure, the, the part that we don't know for sure is that space is infinite or that there's an infinite number of anything. And for... For people who feel really bothered by these implications and want to get rid of the infinity, in fact, I, I have a whole section in the book where I attack infinity and, and list all the ways in which you can get rid of the infinity. So there's a lot of interesting opportunities there, and, and we're going to know more, I think, in the next five or ten years. However, what I think seems pretty much inescapable at this point is that the ultimate, the full reality is at least much larger than what we can see. There's just no way that space ends exactly at the edge of our universe. Mm. In fact, if you had made that claim, you know, one minute ago, I could falsify it now by looking with a telescope because I can see light that's traveled from one minute farther away. Mm. And that's pretty far. That's a sixth of the way to the sun, an eighth of the way to the sun already, right? And uh, so we should probably get used to the idea that we live in a much grander reality than, than we thought we did. And I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I. So I don't think people's intuitions recoil at the very, very large, or even I think people are prepared to embrace the infinite and the eternal in some sense. Even though we could debate whether thinking about a beginning is actually more understandable than thinking about a, an eternal universe, given how squirrely the beginning begins to look. But I think what 
what really will blow the mind of uh, anyone who thinks about it long enough and, 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 and seems very difficult to accept is this idea at the level one multiverse, what is implied by the, the, just the sheer concept of infinity, that, that everything that is possible is in fact actual. Uh, on some level, everything is true. And well, let's just spell out why this should be disturbing and why this may in fact be at least at first glance, a real embarrassment to science because science prides itself on being parsimonious. And right. this is not only this, you know, seemingly this is not only unparsimonious, this is the least parsimonious idea imaginable. Um, I disagree, actually. It, it, well, I, I want to get there, but I just, I, I don't want to leave our listeners confused here. So, I mean, some might not even know what I mean by parsimonious because I mean, parsimonious in common Parlance just means stingy or you know not wasteful, and in science we talk about a theory uh, or or the very style of thinking that is scientific as being parsimonious in not being theoretically wasteful. And and there's this concept of Occam's razor, which many people have heard of, which admonishes us not to multiply quantities uh, without reason. And so you know if, if gravity, if the concept of gravity can explain why why it's difficult to lift heavy or massive objects, then just use gravity and don't posit the existence of, you know, invisible elves that are also holding down the rocks. Um, exactly. And so it's that's why we're, we're biased toward simple explanations over what seem like needlessly co complex ones. Exactly. And so this on its face seems incredibly unparsimonious because, again, we're saying that essentially everything that's possible is true. In thinking about this, I, I guess in in one sense it it can seem parsimonious when you think of when you think of like having to to invite people to a party. You're, you're coming up with a guest list for a party, and you're you're faced with many hard decisions. And you could sort you of say invite everybody. you could inv invite everybody, or you know even you know worse than that, you could say, well, you know, let's invite everyone on Earth, and then just call whatever they're already doing the party. That's in fact simpler than coming up with a guest list that excludes people. So tell me why this is not embarrassing with respect to constraints like Occam's Razor. Yeah, with, with pleasure. I mean, I'm a big fan of Occam's Razor. You'll be pleased to know I actually have a framed equation of gravity here in my office. Mm. And if I were, were to add some elves to that, you know, it would make the equation that's framed here much uglier mm. and more complicated. So to, so to me, Occam's Razor means... That you you don't want to add wasteful things to your theory. You want to keep it as simple as you can. So let's drill down and ask what is it that we feel is so wasteful in in uh, this inflationary universe? Is it that we're worried about wasting space? Hardly, because even Newton's theory of physics had an infinite space, right? Space was the, the space of Euclid. Mm. That's been going on forever in all directions. Was it that you were worried about wasting atoms? No, because again, if you just have that's what a lot of people thought we had earlier also. But somehow people, I think, feel that it's wasteful in terms of information. It just sounds so complicated that you have to describe all possible ways in which you and I could have this conversation and so on. However, in physics, right, what we really, really value the simplicity of is not the solutions to the equations, but the equations themselves. The fact that we can just on one blackboard write down equations that can describe everything around us in the world. That's the parsimony. And the theory of inflation, together with the theory of general relativity, is extremely simple and parsimonious. And that's why it's become so popular, because 
you get much more out of it than you put into it. You put in these very simple equations, you can predict all that stuff. If, if you go a little farther, you, you add in there the standard model of particle physics and so on. It, it turns out with just those equations and a little cheat sheet with 32 numbers, we can calculate hundreds of thousands of numbers, every single number we've ever measured in the physics labs around the world. You know, that's parsimony in that the, the equations are simple, the math is simple. Mm. Never mind that the solutions are complicated. Think of Niagara Falls, right? The equations that describe the water flow there, they're called the Navier-Stokes equations, and they're simple enough you could put them on your T-shirt. Mm. But look at the solution. It's so complicated with all the spray and all the, the water droplets and the turbulence, right? Yet we, we feel that this is a perfectly beautiful explanation of what's happening, having mm. these equations, because the equations are simple. Right, right. Well, let's let's press on into the the multiverse to level two. This will push people's intuitions in the direction of feeling like, at the very least, we're we're trying to have our cake and eat it too on this question of of parsimony. So, so take us to the the level two multiverse and uh, perhaps say why this is a, uh, relevant to the question of fine tuning and. Um, at which, and the question of fine-tuning, as many people will recall, is relevant to this idea of, uh, that many religious people have of why religion, the idea of a creator god in particular, makes sense uh, given the apparent fine-tuning of our universe. With pleasure. First, though, let me just uh, say one more thing about the level one multiverse here mm -hmm. so that the listeners don't worry too much about what you said about everything happening somewhere because mm -hmm. someone might worry that they're an axe murderer in a parallel universe. Oh, they are. But I want to put them at ease by <laughs> saying that if you if you start traveling through space, these vast distances, and you find all these other planets where other things are happening, on the vast majority of them, the vast majority of the other of their alter egos who look like them are not axe murderers. Or they're doing very very reasonable things, and so but, they think but, that but the worthy people are really the rare flukes. But but the rare flukes are well. But wait a minute, the rare flukes are not only true; they're an infinite number of them it's just proportionally it's, it's a lesser infinity than the other infinities of, of of apparently benign lawful behavior yeah but it's kind of like when i get on an airplane if i worry about it that it's going to crash you know i know that in the multiverse it is going to crash and it's not going to crash but that doesn't traumatize me particularly because i know the fraction of all the parallel universes where it's going to crash is much less than one in a million anyway so right it's only right. a very tiny fraction of the maxes that get wiped out, and I don't worry about it. And it's exactly in that way that people shouldn't worry too much about <laughs> being axe murderers yes. somewhere else. We're, but let me come to the we're relying on multiverse. proportion. Yeah, proportionality is yeah. here what we we care about. Exactly. So the level two multiverse, you can again synonymously call simply space, if you want. Inflation is able to actually not only make an infinite space, but it's actually able to make fit within this an infinite number of regions that each seem infinite to whoever lives inside of them through some some very very weird properties of Einstein's gravity theory that I talk about in the book and what's interesting about this is that um, when you ask how diverse is space you might think oh you know in some places our podcast goes like here and other places we talk about other things but at least the laws of physics are the same everywhere. You might think at least even if we learn, people learn different things in history class, if the Sam Harris somewhere else learns different things in his history class, 
because the quarks started out differently there and history played out differently. At least he's going to learn the same thing in physics class. But the level two multiverse changes that also because it turned out that a lot of things that we thought were fundamental laws of physics that were true everywhere in space were actually not, it seems. And I like to, I like to think about it as if I were a fish swimming around in the ocean. I would think that it's a law of physics that water is something you can swim through because that's the only kind of water I know, and it seems to be that way everywhere I look. But if I were a really smart fish, I could solve the equations, discover the equations for water, and I could solve them and see that there are actually three solutions, not one. There's the water solution and also ice and steam. Hmm. Equivalently, there are a lot of hints now in physics that what we call empty space is also like that, that it can freeze and melt and come in many different variants. And the thing is, inflation is so violent that if space actually can be in many different forms, what inflation will do is it will create each of those kinds of space and an infinite amount of it at that. So if you go really, really far away, you might find yourself in a, in a part of space where there are not actually six kinds of quarks like there are here, but maybe there are 10 kinds of quarks. So the level two multiverse is very, very diverse. Also, a lot of things that we learn in school are fundamental parameters of physics. For example, that the number 1836 seems kind of hardwired into our world in that, that the proton is 1,836 times heavier than an electron. Why is that? Well, string theory suggests that actually that's one of those things that also changes depending on what kind of space you have. So it might be 2015 somewhere else, and 666 somewhere else. And this explains this fine-tuning problem that you mentioned, because we've discovered, as I alluded to earlier, that there are these 32 numbers, pure numbers with no units or anything, that we've measured, that we can use to calculate everything else. And we wonder a lot about where they came from. So the, these are the, the constants of nature. Could, could you just list a few of them to give people a sense? Yeah. So, so 1836 is one of them. How much heavier the proton is than a neutron. You can transform them in different ways. Another one which is super talked about these days is the, the density of dark energy, hmm. which makes up about 70% of all the stuff in our universe. And um, turns out... It, if you think of each of these parameters written on a knob that you could twist, <laughs> you shouldn't touch the knobs. That's my the knobs. That's my advice. Because if you tweak most of them, life as we know it would be completely destroyed. The sun would explode, or something else very bad would happen. That's the fine tuning that you mentioned. That it seems like the, many of these parameters have been dialed in exactly at the right values needed to support life. And and for some of them, the the, the fine tuning is incredibly fine. We're talking about yeah. Just what, 10 decimal places or, or beyond, right? Yeah, even even for something as basic as this, how strong the electric force is, if you change it by about a percent when one direction or the other, that you wouldn't have any enough oxygen or enough ca carbon anymore to have life on Earth. And, and the most fine-tuned one of all is this dark energy I mentioned, which is fine-tuned to over 100 decimal places. Right, right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And... Okay, if, so um, so religious people have. are religious people are getting very excited here. So so we, some have, but not yes. not all. But 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 there's an the level two multiverse gives an alternative explanation because if it's actually the case that this number is just dialed in randomly in 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 different huge swaths of space, then um, since you can calculate that you're only going to form galaxies in those places where the dark energy is is just right, 
where you're in this bio-friendly Goldilocks zone of dark of the dark energy, then of course this question of what what how much dark energy there is is only going to be asked in those places where there's life. So we shouldn't be surprised at all that uh, we actually find the dark energy to be in that life-friendly range. You know, it's, basically we hate unexplained surprises in science. We usually, when we get an unexplained surprise, instead say that that means that our theory has been ruled out. Right? And uh, what this does is it actually gives an explanation of why we're measuring these values. And Steve, the famous physicist Steven Weinberg even used this argument to predict the amount of dark energy here before they actually discovered dark energy. And it turned out that his prediction was, was really quite good. So, so that's one of the feathers in the hat of the level two multiverse. We don't know, of course, yet whether it exists, but uh, it's, it's kind of hard to get rid of. Even if string theory turns out to be wrong, the competitor loop quantum gravity also seems to have multiple solutions for space. And it's a pretty general property of math that if you have some complicated equations, they have many solutions. And inflation has this amazing property of being this creative force that transforms potential existence into actual existence. So any kind of space that can exist, inflation will create a huge swath of it. And uh, thereby being sort of the great enabler, basically, of, <laughs> of possibilities. So to connect this level two multiverse with, with the level one multiverse, in the level one, we were talking essentially about the universe as we know it extending infinitely or uh, almost infinitely beyond the horizon of what we can make out. And so we're really just talking about more space and more That's matter. Right. And that, right. and that, if it's an, if it's infinite, just suggests that everything that happens that can happen within the, the the laws of physics does happen. With the level two, we're talking about inflation creating an infinite number of bubble universes, which, wherein the laws of physics themselves vary in every conceivable way, and we. Well let Not, me just interject there sure. so it doesn't sound too weird. Instead of talking about bubble universes, we can just keep saying space because there's still okay. only one space. But these the are reason but, we can't. But it's not it's not space in a straightforward sense that that is. No, it is actually. But the reason the reason we can never get to another part of the level two multiverse is because in order to go there, you would have to go through a region of space which is still inflating and stretching out. So, like if if you're if you have your kids in the back seat asking, are we there yet? You know, you would say, oh, yeah, we'll be there in uh, one hour. And then a little bit later, they ask, are we there yet? And you'll be like, yeah, we'll be there in two hours. Right, right. So, so, so inflation can actually create this funny situation where you have many, even infinite regions of space that are still fitting into one single piece of space. So that's that's one clarification. It's still just this one space, but messy. And And the second thing is, it's not that the actual laws of physics are different. It's just that Things that we thought were laws of physics turned right. out to actually just be different solutions to the laws of physics. Exactly. So yeah. Ice is not the different law of physics from liquid water or steam. They turn out to be three different solutions to uh, to the equations for water. And and it, this is a, a cool trend that's happened in, in science where there were, for example, Kepler, a very smart guy, right, who was the guy who figured out the planets go around in ellipses. He tried to predict from first principles why the orbits of the planets in our solar system were the size that they were and came up with a really beautiful theory that if you put a it's something like you put a cube inside of a 
dodecahedron inside of an icosahedron, etc. And it's supposed to match up with Mercury and Venus and Mars and mm. and Earth and Jupiter, etc. Turn out now, you know, people would just laugh at that because it doesn't make sense that you should be able to predict exactly the orbit of Earth and the orbit of Mars because there are many solar systems where the answers are different, mm. right? So how could you possibly that? It's not like the size of Earth's orbit is something that's in the laws of physics. It just came about sort of randomly from the birth of the way our solar system was born. And what the level two multiverse does is it, it, it similarly downgrades a lot of other stuff that people thought were fundamental laws of physics, like how many quarks there are. And says, actually, that too is a historical accident that had to do with the way this region of space got created. Right. It's, it's actually sh shuttling some of the s subject matter of physics into the subject matter of history, albeit a history exactly. of, a, of a very uh, erudite kind. That's exactly right. And that means actually that that's something Occam would like because it makes physics itself simpler and it makes history more complicated. That's a fascinating idea. And it, it is one that closes the door to this otherwise embarrassing problem of fine tuning, which is you know how did we how is it that we find ourselves in a universe that seems perfectly tuned to support life and intelligent life and, and beings exactly like ourselves in a position to wonder about these things and there have been other efforts to close that door just with the what's been called the the anthropic principle which you stated earlier just that the only place we can find ourselves is a place that's compatible with with our existence and so that shouldn't be surprising and yet it has seemed surprising that essentially that we should exist at all, that the universe could have been an infinite number of ways and it just happened to be this way. Well, in according to the level two multiverse, the universe is essentially an infinite number of ways and there are an infinite number of universes that are not compatible with life. It's kind of a, it's a Darwinian principle of universe emergence, that the only places you can find yourself are the places you, you can find yourself and every place that is possible in some sense exists. Yeah, I, I don't like the use of the term anthropic principle for these sort of things because the word principle makes it sound like it's somehow optional. Mm. I mean, it's just correct use of logic, which of course is not optional. You know, the, the uh, it's like, why are you really, really surprised that out of all the eight planets in our solar system, we're living on Earth rather than Venus, where it's 900 Fahrenheit right now, or on right. Jupiter, where there's more surface to stand on? <laughs> You're probably not very surprised. I wouldn't call that some deep principle. It's just common sense that the the vast majority of our solar system is is not very friendly for our kind of life, and the vast majority of space is horrible for our kind of life, and uh, therefore we shouldn't be very surprised that we're living in a special, very a very special part of the space that we can see. Yeah, and it, it is kind of it, that we're living in a special part of the space we can't see either. I agree. It's a kind of pseudo mystery based on. A needlessly retrospective, you know, post hoc look at probability. I, I could ask the same question with respect to the arrangement of objects on my desk at this moment. I'm looking at my exactly. desk. There's objects. Exactly. They're, they're strewn everywhere. I have a very messy desk. What are the chances that these that the pen would be exactly where it is uh, in this well, moment? What are the chances that that your mother's mother's mother met your mother's mother's father, you know, given the way things were 50 years before that. Right. Know, look at all the coincidences that happened, that, that seemed to happen. But yeah. I, I'm sure you don't lose a lot of sleep over that one. No, no.
So one way of closing the door to the, the this mystery of fine tuning, which doesn't entail yet another multiverse, so a level two multiverse, is this idea that we could be in a simulation. I don't know if this argument originates with uh, your friend Nick Bostrom, or if if other people have. I know other people have arrived at this independently, but yeah, the argument is older. But Nick Bostrom made a very detailed argument for why we sh- he thinks it's actually likely that we live in a simulation. Right. So so and yeah. So I guess we can open the door to that too. So the his argument in in brief is that if you imagine ourselves in the distant future or or beings like ourselves that make vast gains in their ability to produce computers and it stands to reason that they will simulate universes and beings very much like ourselves on those computers uh, assuming that, that such a thing is possible and there's really no reason to think it isn't and then by just dint of numbers you would expect simulations to vastly outnumber real universes and therefore you would expect that you should be in a simulation rather than in a, in a real universe that argument sort of stands on its own unrelated to this issue of of fine tuning or or a or the multiverse but if taken seriously the the prospect of being in a simulation it does answer this fine tuning argument as well correct so it's a fascinating uh, uh, question i i give a detailed argument in the book for why I think we're not living in a simulation. I won't get into now in the interest of time, but just to get a sense for what might be fishy here, just suppose you buy the simulation argument, okay? And you say, okay, we are living in a simulation. This is not the actual reality. There's some sort of basement reality where the computers are there simulating us with different laws of physics. And and then, suppose you buy that. Then you can make the argument again, right? That you should be a simulation within the simulation for exactly the same reasons. And then you can make, repeat the argument ad absurdum that you, and then decide that you're a simulation within a simulation within a simulation almost forever. So something seems fishy there. And, and as I explain in more detail in the book, the, the fundamental flaw in the argument I feel is that if we are in a simulation, then there's no reason to believe that the laws of physics, that the, compu- the simulating computers are obeying have anything to do with the laws of physics that we mm. think yeah see around us in this world because this isn't the real reality where the simulation is happening anyway and the, the simulation arguments kind of conflates these two finally though <laughs> in, in case you're still worried about living in a simulation i'll just give you some advice live a really interesting life and do interesting things so that whoever is running it doesn't get bored and shut you down right Right. Well, my my concern about the simulation is, given my record of being critical of religion, is that you know if, if the Mormons are running the simulation at some point in the future, that I could be living in a universe where Mormonism is precisely true, in a simulation where Mormonism is precisely true, uh, or any other religious uh, conception of reality. So, see you in hell, Max. No, oh, that's vision, your vision of purgatory, <laughs> yeah. is it? So, well, this might be a good bridge, and, and now I'm mindful of, of your time here, uh, so we're, we're not doing anything like justice to the contents of your book. Uh, we're going to skip over the other ways in which you can arrive at a conception of a multiverse, in particular the quantum mechanical issues uh, addressed by Hugh Everett, and um, all of that is fascinating, and it's, it's, a, it's just another route into infinite copies of ourselves having uh, infinite versions of this podcast, and no doubt in, in some of those podcasts um, we treat these, these uh, topics at, at much greater length. But I think this is a good bridge to AI, where, which is where you and I met at uh, the conference that you organized through your institute. One question I have for you is, 
you know, I came away from that conference, really, I came into that conference really as, a, as an utter novice on this topic. I had just more or less ignored AI, uh, having accepted the rumors that there more or less no progress had been made, all the promises had been overblown, and uh, there was not much to worry about. And it was kind of a, just a dead end scientifically. And then I heard, you know, our mutual friend Elon Musk and other people like Stephen Hawking uh, worrying out loud about the prospect of of AI, and very much in the in the near term, you know, whether you're, whether it's five years or fifty years, we're talking about in a time frame that that any rational person, uh, certainly any rational person who has kids, could worry about, could make you know huge gains, which could well destroy us if we don't anticipate the ways in which machines more intelligent than ourselves could fail to converge with our interests and, and could fail to be controllable, ultimately controllable by us. I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times, and, and I've recommended Nick Bostrom's book on this topic, uh, Superintelligence, which uh, is really a great summary of, of the problem. So I, my question for you is, you and I both answered the, the, the edge question my response to which is, is also on my blog. The edge question was on this topic right after the conference in San Juan that you organized. And I noticed that there, there are many smart people, many of whom should be very close to this, the data here, who are really deeply skeptical that there's anything to worry about here. I mean, so friends and colleagues of, of mine and, and perhaps yours, like Steven Pinker and Lawrence Krauss, take a very different line here and more or less have said that concerns about AI are totally overblown and that there's no reason to think that that there should be safety concerns that will just kind of get into the end zone. And it, I mean, they're basically treating it like the Y2K scare. And I'm, I'm just wondering what what you think about that and, and what accounts for that. So this is this is fascinating. I've noticed this too. This is a question more than any other where I, I think a lot where, first of all, there, there's so unfamiliar questions that a lot of very smart people actually get confused about them. And also, there are, it's also interesting to be clear on the fact that people who say don't worry very often disagree with one another. Mm. So you have, for example, one camp who say, let's not worry because we're never going to get machines smarter than people, You have, or at least not for hundreds of years. And this camp includes a lot of um, famous business people and a lot of great people in the AI field also. You had Andrew, Andrew Ng, for example, saying recently that Worrying about AI becoming smarter than people and causing problems is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, right? He's a good ambassador mm. for that camp. Mm. And you have to respect that. It might very well be that we will not get anything like human-level AI for hundreds of years. Then you have another group of very smart people who say, don't worry, for sort of the opposite reason. They, they say, let's not We are convinced that we are going to get human-level AI probably in our lifetime with, with good odds, but it's going to be fine. I, I call these the digital utopians, hmm. uh, and there's a fine tradition in this. Also, you have a beautiful, lot of beautiful books by people like Hans Moravec, Ray Kurzweil, and um, also a lot of leading people in the AI field fall into that camp. They they think that AI is going to succeed. That's why they're working on it so hard right now, and they're convinced that it's not going to go wrong. So, <laughs> for starters, I would love to have a debate between these two groups of people. That, that we both don't worry about why they differ so much in their timelines. Uh, my own attitude about this is, I agree, we certainly don't know for sure that we're going to get human-level AI, or that if we do, it's going to be a great problem. But we also don't know for sure that it's not going to happen. And uh, as long as we are not sure that it's not going to be a disaster in our lifetime, it's it's good strategy to pay some attention to it now. 
just like even if you're figuring your house is probably not going to burn down, it's still good to have a fire extinguisher and not leave the candles burning when you go to bed. You know, take some precautions. Right? That was very much the spirit of this conference. Look at concrete things we can do now to increase the chances of things going well. And finally, I think we have to stress that as opposed to other things you could worry about, like nuclear war or some new horrible virus or whatever, this question of AI is not just something negative. It's also something which has mm. a huge potential upside. I, we have so many terrible problems in the world that we're failing to solve because we're, we don't understand things well enough. And if we can amplify our intelligence with artificial intelligence, it will give us great power to do things better for the life in the future. Uh, but, you know, as with any powerful technology that can be used for good, it can also be used, of course, to screw up. And when we've invented uh, less powerful tech in the past, like when we invented fire, we learned from our mistakes. And then we invented the fire extinguisher and, and things were more or less fine, right? But with more powerful tech like nuclear weapons, synthetic biology, future super advanced AI, <laughs> we don't want to learn from our mistakes. We really want to get it right the first time. Yeah. That might be the only yeah. thing we have. Well, yeah, and that's that's what, in my view and in the views of many people, that's what makes this AI issue unique because we're talking about ultimately autonomous systems that exceed us in intelligence. And as you say, that the, the temptation to turn these systems loose on the problems that the other problems that we confront is going to be exquisite. Of course, we want something that can help us cure Alzheimer's or cure Alzheimer's on its own and stabilize economies right. and do everything else that give us a perfect, you know, climate science, etc. Uh, so, it's, I mean, there's nothing better than intelligence and to have more of it would seem an intrinsic good, except if you imagine failing to anticipate the way this, you, you could essentially get a, you know, what, I.J. Good described as an intelligence explosion, where this thing could get away right. from us, and we would we would not be able to say, "Oh no, sorry, that's not what we meant." Here, let's let's modify your code. Exactly. But many smart people just have a fundamental doubt that any sort of intelligence explosion is possible. That's that's the sense I'm getting. They, they view it very much like other things, like fire or nuclear weapons where you know all technology is powerful and you don't want it to fall into the wrong hands and you don't you know people can use it maliciously or stupidly and but we understand that and they think it it doesn't really go beyond that that there's no reason I mean people trivialize this by saying that there's no reason to think that computers are are, are going to become malicious like the, and and you know they where they're going to spawn armies of terminator robots because they decide they want to right. kill human beings but that's really not the fear the fear is not that they will be spontaneously become malevolent it's that we could fail to anticipate some way in which their behavior could diverge however subtly but you know ultimately fatally from our own interests and to have this thing get away from us in a way that we can no longer correct for. That's That, to me, is the concern. Exactly. We should not fear malevolence. We should fear competence. Because hmm. if you have an... Ex what is intelligence to an AI researcher? It's simply the ability... It's simply being really good at accomplishing your goals, whatever they are. A chess computer is considered very intelligent if it's really good at winning in chess. And um, there is another game called Losing Chess, which has the opposite goal, where you try to lose. And their computer is considered good, intelligent if it's if it loses the game better than mm -hmm. any of the others. So the the goals have 
very have nothing really to do with how competent it is. And that means that we have to be really careful if we build something more intelligent than us to also have its goals aligned with our goals. It's for a silly example, if you have a super intelligent, if you have a very intelligent self-driving car with speech recognition and you tell it, take me to the airport as fast as possible, you're going to get to the airport chased by helicopters and covered in vomit. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be like, that's not what I wanted. And it'll be like, that's what you told me to do. Right. And you're like, well, that's not what I meant. Uh, and, but this illustrates how challenging it can be to get the goals right. And the, the, these, there are a lot of beautiful myths from antiquity going all the way back to King Midas mm. on exactly this theme, right? He thought it would be a great idea if everything he touched turned to gold until he touched his dinner and then touched his daughter and got what he asked for. And competence, if you think about why we have done more damage to other species than any other species has on Earth, uh, it's not because we're evil, hmm. but it's because we're so competent, right? Like, do you? What about you, for example? Do you personally hate ants? Would you say no? No, that's I mean, that's a great analogy. It's just that I, I, insofar as I, my disregard for them is fatal to many of them, and I'm so unaware of their interests that uh, my mere presence is a threat to them and as it, right. you know as is our civilization's presence to every other species and what we're talking about here if again if you're it's very hard to resist the slide into this not being just possible but inevitable the moment you right. admit that intelligence and sentience ultimately is just a matter of what some appropriate computational system does and you admit that we're going to we'll keep making progress building such systems indefinitely unless we destroy ourselves some other way well then at some point we're we're going to realize in silicon or some other material systems that exceed us in in every way and may ultimately uh, have a level of experience and and, and insight and you know f form instrumental goals that's right. Which are no more cognizant of our own than we are of those of ants. You know, if we, if we learned exactly. that ants had invented us, that would still not put us in touch with their needs or concerns. That's right. And then for an example about that, we you actually know that in a certain sense, your genes have invented you, right? Mm -hmm. They built your brain so that you could make copies of your genes. That's why you like to eat so you don't starve to death and and that's why we humans fall in love and do other things to make copies of our genes, right? But even though we know that, mm. we still choose to use birth control, which is exactly the opposite of what our genes want. And it, as you say, it'll be the same with the ants. And, and I think some people dismiss the idea that you can never have things smarter than humans simply for mystical reasons, because they think that there's something more than quarks and electrons and information processing going on in us. But if you take the scientific approach that you really are your quarks, but then there is clearly no fundamental re law of physics that says that we can never have anything more intelligent than a human. We know that we were constrained very much by how many quarks you could fit into a skull and, and, and stuff like that, right? Constraints that computers don't have. And um, it becomes instead more a question of time. And as you said, there's such relentless pressure to make smarter things because it's profitable and interesting and useful that I think the question isn't if it's going to happen, but when and and finally just to come back to those ants again uh to just drive home the point that it's really competence rather than malevolence that uh, we should fear if those ants were thinking about whether to in invent you or not right someone might say well i i know that sam 
actually he saw me on the street once and he went out of his way to not step on me. Hmm. So that may mean I feel safe. I don't worry about creating Sam Harris. But that would be a mistake because sometimes you're jogging at night and you just don't see the ants and the ants just aren't sufficiently high up on your list of goals that, that, that for you to pay the extra attention and see if there are any ants there before your step where you put your feet down, right? And suppose now you're in charge of this uh, huge green energy project and just as you're about to let the water flood this hydroelectric dam that you've, that you've built, someone points out that there's an anthill right in the middle of it. Now you actually know that the ants don't want to be drowned, right? And and you have this decision. What are you going to do? Yeah, well, too bad for the ants in that case. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. And we, want, I think, want to plan things ahead so that we don't end up in the role of the ants. Right. Well, listen, Max, now I'm uh, excruciatingly mindful of the time. You've been incredibly generous with yours, and there is just a ton we could talk about. But I, I just think this is um, very useful, and I think our listeners... Uh, Will feel the same, and I just uh, to close. I just want you um, to tell people where they can find more about you and your work online. What are your What are your uh, various uh, websites and uh, social media accounts that you might want out there? So you, people can go to ourmathematicaluniverse.org, or they can simply look for my book on Amazon, the one and only I've ever written. If you just Google Tegmark, you'll find it. And um, this book basically summarizes what I feel I've learned so far during my life as a scientist and it's written for intelligent curious people who have not spent their career you know, studying physics or other science and I've, I've, and I've tried very hard in writing the book not only to talk about the, the cool things we've learned but also about the joy of doing science the process of it that's why the book is subtitled my quest for the ultimate nature of reality so if, if you the listener choose to read this book, then it won't just be my quest, but our quest. Yeah. And I, I highly recommend that you do. And uh, I'll put a link to the book and to your uh, relevant websites on the blog post where I embed this podcast. So listen, Max, thanks again. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Sam. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.